Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in the story of the twins. We've already had some interesting episodes between Esav and Yaakov. Who is the elder of Esav and Yaakov? Esav. Esav is older by a few minutes. They are twins, but one is older, right? So he has the right to what the eldest son inherits, which is more than the younger son. And we'll remember that, that Yaakov comes out holding on to the heel of Esav, yes? So this poetic uh, metaphor for uh, what the English translation would be is usurper, right? So Yaakov comes out, even though Esav comes out first, Yaakov's hanging on to his heel in this foreshadowing of him taking Esav's place in the world. The word? I don't know. There's no Hebrew? I don't, I don't know the etymology. He, he shall follow. I, I don't know. So. No. So, um, so I don't know the etymology of Esau. <clears throat> A lot of these names are <clears throat> related, excuse me, are related to peoples in the region. And sometimes the etymology is clear and sometimes it isn't. All right, so we are so already. Um, Yaakov has engaged with Esav around the issue of one part of what it means to be born first. He's now going to go to the second thing um, that Esav inherits, if you will, as the eldest, and we're going to see what he does with that. We're going to see Yitzchak now is old, and what I want you to remember is a couple of things as we move into this telling of the story. We're going to go again to like we did with the uh, story of Hagar. I want to go to a meta level and talk at the meta level. We've we've been in this story before. We've dug in. It's great. We're going to do that too. But I want to stay at kind of a meta level this year. Yitzchak, tell me the definitive experience of Yitzchak's life. The Akedah. Right? That is the definitive moment for Yitzchak. And really, we don't get a lot about Yitzchak after that. And as we've talked about before, there's a theory that there's a lot of Isaac material that we just don't have. A lot of Isaac material went away. He, he becomes less prominent, and we just don't have a lot of that literature. Be that as it may, that moment is the definitive paradigmatic moment for Yitzchak. The Midrashic tradition never lets go of that. For the Midrashic tradition, everything goes back to the Akedah. Everything, including this incident. Everything. In the imagination of the rabbinic literature, him lying bound on that altar with his father ready with a knife to end, you know, to end his life in order to do something vis-a-vis this God of his, that moment is the moment that defines Yitzchak. What happens, remind us, that place where he's bound on the altar, what does that become later? In mythic rabbinic imagination, that is the Temple Mount. Oh. Oh, wow. The Kodesh Kedoshim, the Holy of Holies, is the place on which Yitzchak was offered. That Abraham passes the test. I put that in air quotes for those of you at home um, because some of us don't believe necessarily Abraham passed the test. Uh, but in Torah, clearly, it, it approves of what he does. Um, but that, that spot becomes the temple. So for the rabbis, all of that is always going on, even here. So I want you to think that way. Akedah, Yitzchak, and this spot where the Akedah happened is going to be the temple, and it informs for the rabbis how they read everything, including the details of this story. This um, foreshadows modern psychology. Say more, Sarah. Trauma. Of trauma. Yes. Yes. For the rabbis, he is defined by the traumatic moment of the Akedah, which is insightful, right, for them. I I believe you're right. That's very insightful. 
Um, because trauma is not unknown before modern right psychology. <laughs> people see how people react to trauma. But the other thing is that actually heaven is traumatized. All right. Let's see how. Somebody read at 27.1, please. When Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see, he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son. He answered, Here I am. And he said, I am old now and I do not know how soon I may die. Take your gear, your quiver and bow, and go out into the open and hunt me some game. Then prepare a dish for me such as I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my innermost blessing before I die. Okay, let's stop there. So he's going to give him a blessing, right? As the oldest son. As the oldest son. And because he says, I don't know when I might die, this is, in effect, his deathbed blessing. And he wants to be in control of when that happens. He doesn't want, God forbid, to die without having given this last blessing to his firstborn. Who is Yaakov's favorite of the son, Yitzchak's favorite of the sons? Asav. So not only his firstborn, but his favorite. Rivka prefers Jacob. Jacob. So Asav is a man of the field. He likes to hunt. So dad says, go and get me from what you know I like, right? The kind of game that you know I like. When he was old and his eyes were too dim to see. Literally in Hebrew, betichena enav. His eyes were kehe, um, opaque. Probably cataracts. So when you get cataracts before the miracle of surgery, or if you live in a place where you can't afford that, what happens to your eyes? They become cloudy, and you can't. You can sort of see, but not really. You're not blind necessarily, but so that's what the Hebrew was saying. His eyes become covered from seeing. It's not the word for blind. <clears throat> so usually this is interpreted as cataracts, some kind of loss of vision related to age. And some, the rabbis want to, of course, use this metaphorically. If this is metaphor, what does it mean that his eyes are clouded from seeing? He's not seeing as well as he... What is he not seeing? He's confused about the situation. Not yet. He's he's not seeing clearly that Yaakov is the one who should be receiving the blessing. Remember who we're talking about? We're talking about the rabbis. They have to defend the choice of Yaakov. Right? Or else, or else what Rivka and Yaakov do here is horrible. They have to defend this, right? So for them, don't read just that he has cataracts, God forbid, that his vision is cloudy from seeing clearly. It's that he's not seeing clearly what needs to happen between his two sons. Because he becomes the next patriarch. Right? He becomes... He becomes a different people, right? He's not, we don't consider him our ancestor patriarch. It's Yaakov that the covenantal relationship is going to continue through. But if we just follow this line, wouldn't it be Esau by birth? Yes, yes. Yes, so how do we defend the fact that they flip, they flip that? Um, okay, so if we remember our lesson from Hagar, we're talking about Mesopotamia, where does Rebecca come from? Mesopotamia. Does she know any much about this Yudhe business? Not so much. Right? She's been brought as a wife to Isaac many years ago. Right now she's been hanging out with them. She understands what this family's about. It's a little crazy. This family's involved with this invisible one god, whatever. Rivka comes from the family of, of Rachel, of Leah. Right? She comes from this where Yaakov's, you know, going to go. So she's from Mesopotamia. This is Hagar all over again. So this I mean, with, with, with Hagar being concerned about her 
matrimony, if I can make up that word, mm -hmm. and and here here Rivka coming from the same kind of culture, she's concerned about her place in the future. And who who is the important one to take care of a holy woman in her old age? The youngest child. So. So there's some defense of Rivka just on Mesopotamian culture. If we go right back to, to Savina Tuval's work that we talked about last time, there's some understanding of Rivka already maybe seeing things differently than Yitzchak sees them. Her customs are different. We can just hold that as a possibility. The Midrashic tradition has this beautiful story of why are Isaac's eyes cloudy, because when he was bound on the altar and all he, he can't move, all he can do is look up. That's all that moves are his eyes. He's bound. He's tied down. The only freedom he has is where to look. And so he's looking up. He sees his father with the knife drawn and he sees the sky. And the angels are weeping for what's about to happen. And their tears fall into Isaac's eyes. So that when he's older, it causes a different kind of vision issue. So, so do you see how for the Midrashic tradition, there's no, there's no separation really in time. It's not just linear, right? It all kind of, you take the linear, you know, Akedah to he's an old man, and you kind of do this, right? You take that line and you just kind of smash it together, and it's, it's all there in every single word of the text. That is what makes a lifetime of Torah study so amazingly empowering in reading these texts, because you, you start to appreciate the layers in every single sentence in books like Genesis. All right, so somebody read at five. As Isaac was speaking to his son Esau, Rebekah was listening. And when Esau went to the countryside to hunt for some game to bring him, Rebekah said this to her son Jacob, Look, I heard your father speaking to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game and make me tasty dishes that I may eat, and then bless you before Adonai, before my death. Now, son, listen to me, to what I am instructing you. Go to the flock. And bring me two tender kids, and I will make them into tasty dishes for your father, so as he likes. You will bring them to your father, and he will eat, so that he may bless you before his death. But Jacob said to his mother, Rebekah, Look, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth-skinned man. And should my father feel me, I will see him like a sheep, and I will bring a curse on myself, not a blessing. His mother then said to him, any curse that you get will be on me, son. Just listen to me and go get them for me. Go on. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and his mother made tasty dishes such as his father liked. Rebecca now took the finest of her elder son Esau's garments that she had in the house and dressed up her younger son Jacob. The skins of the kids she wrapped on his hands and over the smooth part of his neck, and she put the tasty food and bread that she had made into her son Jacob's hand. Going then to his father, he said, Father, and he replied, Here I am, which son of mine are you? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Pray get up and sit and eat of my game so that you can give me your heartfelt blessing. Isaac then said to his son, How is it that you were able to find game so quickly, my son? And he replied, Your God, I did not make for you. Pray come near me, said Isaac to Jacob, so I can feel you, son. Are you really my son Esau, or are you not? <laughs> Jacob approached his father Isaac, who felt him, and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, however, because his hands were hairy like the hands of his brother Esau. And as he was preparing to bless him, he said, Are you really my son Esau? I am, he answered. He said, Bring it near me, and I will eat of my son's game, so I can give you my heartfelt blessing. He brought it to him, and he ate. He brought him wine, and he drank. His father Isaac then said to him, Pray, come near, and kiss me, son. And he came near and kissed him. Isaac smelled the scent of his clothes and blessed him, saying, See, my son's scent is like the scent of a field blessed by Adonai. 
God, give you of heaven's dew, of earth's bounty, abundant grain and new wine. Let peoples serve you, nations bow down to you. Be a ruler to your brothers, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and may those who bless you be blessed. All right, we're going to stop. We're going to pause there. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Those of us who haven't looked at this text in a while are like, wow. As they say in Israel, wow. Wow. So Rivka overhears what Yitzchak says to Esav. Right? So Esav goes out to hunt. How long does it take to hunt game? A while. A while. You have to track it. You have to find one. You have to be quiet. You have to climb up the tree. You have to open your beer. Right? You have to set the sights on your rifle right then. Right? You have to hang out in the deer stand for a while. So, um, so, she, so he's gone, and so Rivka knows she's got a little window. She's got a little time. So she goes to Yaakov and says, I overheard your father speaking to Esau, saying, bring me some game and prepare right, the, a dish for me to eat that I may bless you before I die. She knows what's coming. She knows that this isn't just that I can say a nice brocha. That I may bless you before I die. She knows that this is the big one. This is the big blessing. The firstborn blessing. So she feels, obviously, she has to do something. Because he's going to give it to Esau. Did, Yit, did Yitzchak go to Rivka and say, Honey, I'm feeling like it's time. <laughs> no, he did not. He told Esau privately. Is this because he knows that Rivka prefers Yaakov? Is it because he doesn't feel like he needs to talk to her about the decision? Yitzchak loves Rivka. Have they become... hmm? Maybe she just wasn't there. She's somewhere else? Somewhere else. Okay. But she overheard. But she overheard... uh, Ah. (laughs) Nice try, Lisa. Thank you. Um, (laughs) So... Maybe he just doesn't have to talk to her. But they seem closer than that in some ways. Have they grown distant? Have they grown apart in loving different sons? Investing in different sons? Well, further on, just a little further on, uh, he, he keeps asking, are you really... Yep, yep. So, so he's suspicious. Mm-hmm. So he... So she repeats to, to Yaakov what, what Yitzchak has said and says, get me two choice kids. We're going to get meat and we're going to prepare them the way your father likes it so that it's as if, right, Esau has returned with game. So Yaakov answers his mother. Does he say, "How what a horrifying idea that I should lie to my father? Mm-hmm. Not exactly. Not so much, but he says he'll be cursed. But my brother is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. If my father touches me, I will appear to him as what? He's concerned about how, if he's discovered, he will appear to his father, right? As a trickster. Yeah? So, and I'll bring upon myself a curse, not a blessing. It doesn't seem he's very interested in the moral aspects of what's happening. He's worried about what's going to happen to me. If dad finds out... Did you say something? Yeah, once his mother tells him to do this, you know, maybe that's it for him. It's not about arguing with your mother. It's about, well, if you think it's a good idea, then there must be something to this. How okay. Ah, so we're we're not this is not a five year old, right? So Bert's going to come back at you, Laura, and say this is an adult. Yeah, he doesn't have a responsibility to say, "Wait a minute, mom, really." Sure, he has a responsibility, but you know there are people who will do <laughs> strong women like Rebecca telling him this is what we're going to do. <laughs> so he's learned maybe you don't challenge Rivka. If Rivka says, go get it. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm saying that it's a combination. He certainly could have said, no way. But it wasn't, it wasn't you know, his, it, it was a combination. It was mom saying this is a good idea. Oh, maybe, you know, he didn't come up with it on his own. 
Okay. Didn't he steal Esau's birthright in some earlier... He did. So there's two issues, the birthright and the blessing. So in other words, he's he's not adverse to... (laughs) (laughs) So Sheldon is saying, we've seen a little bit about what Yaakov is willing to do. And there's the Akedah. Maybe he understands that his father could do it, but his mother never would have. He understands. Isaac understands. Yaakov understands that what? Oh, it's his it's grandfather. Abraham was his grandfather. All right. So, what does she answer him? Don't worry. <laughs> Before that, she says, I'll be cursed. Not your your curse be upon me. Right? She's now going to invoke saying, I'm responsible. If there's a curse, it now will be directed at me. Just do as I say and bring me the kids. So he does. She prepares the dish the way she knows Yitzchak likes it. Then she takes her son's best clothes. Why the best clothes? Why not just take... Something he wears in the field or doing vacuuming because he's getting the blessing. This is a big deal. If Asaph really were coming home with game and really were about to go to present it to his father, he knows this is the big deathbed ceremony. You wouldn't wear just vacuuming clothes. You would wear your tuxedo, right? So she takes his tuxedo. His father can't see. What difference does it make? Well, obviously, he has other ways of engaging, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. So she puts on his tuxedo and takes the goat skin and covers all the parts of him that are going to be outside the the tuxedo. And then she says, go, right? Bring this to your father. So he went to his father. And Yitzhak really can't see. He, he, he really can't see. <laughs> I mean, anybody who could see would notice something. Because <laughs> you're walking around with, like, goats tied to your arms and around your neck, right? He didn't spend, like, three days making him a, yeah, right? a suit. A suit, right. But you could argue that he did see. Okay, all right, so we're, we're totally going to go there. We're totally going to go there. All right, 18, Vayavo El Aviv. And he comes to his father, Vayomer Aviv. He says to him, Avi, my father, Vayomer, Hineini, Mi Ata Bni. So Yitzchak answers, Hineini, right? This is the magic word. When you present yourself in readiness to do the momentous thing that's about to happen, the answer is Hineini. That was what Abraham said to God, and wasn't that at the Akidah? Yes. Leading up to the Akedah. Yeah. So God calls, and Abraham says? Hineni. Hineni. God calls to Moshe. Moshe answers? Hineni. Hineni. Ironically, this is his son calling him into this ritual moment, and he says, Hineni, he's ready, but for what? What he's ready for turns out to be a deception, right? So it's a flipping of what usually happens with Hineni. Usually it's God, right? And it's exactly what needs to happen is going to happen. Here we get it, we get it flipped. Avi, Vayomer Hineni, he says, here I am. Mi atabni, who are you, my son? Vayomer Yaakov el Aviv. And Jacob said to his son, Anochi esav bechorecha. I am esav Bechorecha, I am Asav. What is Bechorecha? Your firstborn. Your firstborn. All right. So, tell me the difference. Between <laughs> this and this. The words stay the same. Let's eat 
grandma. <laughs> if it's let's eat apostrophe exclamation point, then it's let's eat, grandma. <laughs> if I take that punctuation away, let's eat, grandma is a very different intention. In Torah, there is no punctuation. <laughs> Who are you, my son? Anochi. Period. Esav bechorecha. Esav is your firstborn. So he's not lying, really. Ah. He's technicality. A technicality. Remember, in Hebrew, you don't need is here. Mm-hmm. Only in English. In in Hebrew, it's Esav bechorecha. Esav, your firstborn, or Esav is your firstborn. It's the same. So if you change the punctuation, Anochi, I am. Who am I? Anochi. Esav bechorecha. Wouldn't, but wouldn't that be a uh, possible way of looking at it if Isaac's question were, who are you? As opposed to, which son of mine are you? Because if how, how is the Hebrew different? Uh, oh, uh, I don't know. Aha. Uh-huh. So, mi atabni, who are you, my son? Oh, as opposed to, okay, so you're saying that the, the way it's translated as which son of mine Correct. Is, is, it is already, right, an interpretation. Okay. Correct. Right. In Hebrew, it is much more... So it's, it's a little grayer, so it could be answered like, well, I'm your son. I'm, I'm me. Esav is your firstborn. Now, I'm not saying I buy it. I'm saying... That sounds very rabbinic. <laughs> Robert says that sounds very rabbinic. What? Well, they're trying to get him off the hook. The jury may not be able to convict on this. However... He goes on asking twice more. Yeah. Exactly. All right. I think Esau knew. I'm, I'm, Isaac knew who, who he was actually talking to. So let's Deep down. He felt Jacob was. Let's go through the text and see how we feel at the end. Miatabni, who are you, my son? Vayomer Yaakov Elaviv, and Yaakov says to his father, Anochi Esav bechor echa. I am Esav, your firstborn. Is how we could read that. Asiti ka'asher dibartailai. I did as you told me to. Kumna, rise, please. Shva, sit. Ve'ochla, and eat. Mitzedi, from my game. Right? Ba'avor tivarcheni nafshecha. So that you can give me your blessing. The blessing of your nefesh, of your, your... Well, this is a important blessing. Of your soul, is it? Uh, in, in biblical Hebrew, there is no difference between self and soul. There's no difference between body and soul. Nefesh later becomes the soul piece. The soul piece. In biblical Hebrew, nefesh is self. You, we can't divide out body and something else. There isn't an understanding of that the same way as, as later in rabbinic Hebrew. 20, Vayomer Yitzchak el Bno. And so Yitzchak says to his son, what is this that you're so fast to find? What is this? You're awfully quick to find, right? Game. Bni, my son. Vayomer. And this is where you gotta, you gotta admire the chutzpah of our ancestor, Yaakov, who says, how did I... Get game so quickly? God. Elohecha. Your God. Right? So how did that happen? Well, of course, it's Yudhevavhe, your God, right? Who granted me this amazing fortune to find game so quickly. Vayomer Yitzchak el Yaakov. And Yitzchak says to Yaakov, Gshana. Right? Come here, please. Right? So basically, come close, come, come close, Bini. So he's telling him, you know, come closer that I may 
essentially that I may touch you, that I may feel you, my son. Tortured Hebrew. Absolutely tortured Hebrew. Let me feel you, my son. That, that hey in front of ata, that hey in front of you can be interrogative, questioning. Is it, is this you, my son, Esav, imlo, if not? Isn't it interesting? Or not? That he doesn't take it for granted and has to have proof? Well, because Why? he's suspicious. Sounds he's suspicious. Like he came too Why? fast. His voice doesn't sound like... So Laura says, it's very clear from the moment he opens his mouth that the voice right. is the voice right. of Yaakov. Yitzhak knows his son's voices. Esav is a big hairy guy who hunts in the fields. Yitzhak, I mean, Yaakov is a yeshiva bucher. Who likes to sit in the tent and sew. Yes. <laughs> Ah. Other senses become acute. Uh-huh. So, so if one can no longer rely on one's sight, might not one sense of hearing become much more acute? And wouldn't that be the way by which you navigate your world? Is by right. hearing and by what touch. we're going to see in a moment? Because smell. Smell and touch. Hearing, touch, smell, because you can't see. Will you hold that for when we come to discuss kind of the meta meanings here? Because I think it's absolutely critically a part of the message and the exploration of what's happening existentially for Yitzchak is the he's still the patriarch. His blessing still carries all the zappage, right? It's still got all the magic, literally all the magic that goes with it. Remember, he can't take it back. Once it's unleashed, he can't undo it at the end of the story when he finds out what's going on. It's gone. So it's still got all that power, and he no longer, on some level, has a certain other kind of authority or power. It really belongs to Rivka. Yes. All right. So Yaakov drew close to his father, Yitzchak, right? Vayomer. And he says, Hakol kol Yaakov. The voice is the voice of Jacob, and here's the disjunctive of, but the hands are the hands of Esav. If he has such good sense of touch because he's blind, how can he think a goat hair? It feels like hair on your skin. Well, remember that it would have been a long-sleeved caftan. Right. Right. When you think, think about people in the Middle East now, in traditional garb. He's a sheikh. Yitzchak is a sheikh, and his son is a prince coming to receive the blessing of the sheikh. He would have been, right, covered a lot, but wherever there was skin, presumably he's feeling hair. (laughs) Rita's not buying it. All right. 23. Velohi kiro. But he did not recognize him. All right. Lo hikiro. He did not recognize him. This is Yaakov stealing something from his brother by wearing clothing that disguises his identity in order to trick his father. When they bring Yaakov the garment of Yosef what do they say to Yaakov? Do you recognize this? These very words are going to come back when Yaakov no longer has power or authority. When his sons have usurped it, because his wife is dead, there is no Rivka. Rachel dies, right? So he want, they bring him the clothing and deceive their father with clothing 
to say, recognize this, please. All right. So you're talking about when they did the and the blood and here it says he didn't recognize him. He's being tricked. Yitzchak's being tricked by Yaakov, right? He didn't recognize him. When they bring Yaakov the trickster a garment, Yaakov is dressed in his brother's garment to trick his father. When his sons come to trick him with a garment, they say, recognize this, please. You who made sure your father didn't recognize because of clothing and you tricked him is the same exact scenario is going to happen to Yaakov by his sons with a piece, an article of clothing and these exact words. It's really hard. But he was also tricked in, in the marriage. He yeah, yeah, Raphael, he he's been tricked all his He's going to be tricked under the chuppah <laughs> as well, right? By Leah being... Disguised, being covered. That's exactly right. He's going to be, she's going to cover herself. And, and it continues. If you think further, Judah, who won't give his son to Tamar, what happens to Judah, the son of Yaakov, who tricked his father Yaakov about Yosef? What happens to Judah? Tamar veils herself as a prostitute and seduces Judah into giving her the children that she deserves. It goes on and on and on, tricking by garments used as disguise to get what people want when they can't do it by challenging the system. Tamar is justified by Torah. And it turns out, so is Rivka. How about the big dad? <laughs> Careful, Laura. <laughs> Careful. Is it, you know, uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned earlier at the top that there's a lot of rabbinic justification for what's going on. But I guess another way of asking the same question is why is it that uh, God's intent for his people is so opaque? that the only way it can be brought about is through deception. Why, you know, why, is it, you know, why isn't it sort of clearer to people, okay, this is what God said he wants to have happen, okay, so this is what we should do. Instead, God says, yeah, this is going to happen, you guys will figure out a way, but the way they figure out is this horribly convoluted, people stabbing each other in the back, all this sort of stuff going on, and somehow it all works out. <laughs> It works out, and I, these days, read these texts, maybe it's because I'm now older. They're very tragic to me on on a lot of levels. It works out, sort of, but really, does it really work out? Yaakov is going to have to flee and never sees Rivka alive again, then gets tricked, into marrying Leah, it tricked into working for. T- I mean, it just—it's so tortured. There's carnage left and right, and and ultimately, none of them seem terribly happy. I mean, they're—they're they're not pretty stories. And wonder about if it's if his purpose then was in part the same, you know, entertainment and telenovelas and soap opera and Game of Thrones. Was it? It's in part to explain the universe to themselves and in part to entertain with... I mean, the story is a lot more interesting when there's intrigue. And if it just said, and then gave his blessing to the right one. So yes, 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 and yes, and yes. And I think that Torah comes often to talk about and explicate what is. And I think that's what I love most about some of these texts, is that they address life as it is. That Yitzchak thinks he knows what, what the right thing to do is. Rivka disagrees, right? And, and it is all tortured and crazy, because and, that's, that's human life, and that's family life. You know, we think, we start hearing two people talk about, oh, divorce today and remarriage and the crumbling of the fit. Really open the book of Genesis. You want to talk to me about blended families? That is nothing new. 
What's new is the nuclear family. That is brand new. And it is a failed social experiment. You've heard me say it before. I will continue to say it. It is a failed experiment. I don't know when we're going to get that. It doesn't work. So these blended families, that has been human norm for most of our lived history. Marriage and what God thinks of marriage. That because what what does God think of marriage? And, okay. I, I, oh, we're getting big. We're getting really big. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also stuck in in another place. What I All right, we're stuck at marriage. What really is marriage? And is this in any way reflective of an ideal? And if so, what the heck does that mean, Paula? You're stuck where? I'm seeing a horrible case of elder. Elder abuse. And how can, how can we have, you know, one of the Ten Commandments honor thy parents? Uh-huh. He's honoring his mother. <laughs> True. Yeah. Well, I guess so. How about taking the name of God in vain? Taking the name of God. We're getting, we're getting some big questions here. Marriage. How do we treat our elders? Is this respectful? Is this how we're supposed to treat people when they get older? And then, what does it mean to say, God did it? Yeah. <laughs> when when the it isn't even true, right? It's, it's one thing to say, oh, God made me do it, right? Could it be Satan, right? So blaming some, you know, other force. But, but for something that's not even true, Right, so I lie and then say, um, "God made this happen," and it's a lie. Who else said God made me do it? Who else says God made me do it? The serpent. The serpent doesn't say God made me do it. No, not the serpent. Eve. Adam says she made me do it. Eve says the serpent made me do it. No worries. then God is acting through him. Oh, okay. Would you stop with the big meta questions until we are done with the text? Oh, my gosh. That's like four from you already at the existential level. <laughs> my head's going to explode. Okay, 24. <laughs> Sorry, 23, end of 23. So he didn't recognize him because his hands were as the hands of Asaph, his brother. Right? They were hairy. And so he blessed him. Vayomer. And he asked, Atazebni Esav? You are you this, my son Esav? Vayomer Ani. And he says, <laughs> What does he say literally in Hebrew? Me. I'm me. So he never really lied. <laughs> <laughs> he just says, Ani, it is I. I mean, that's closer to the sense. Is this really my son, Esav? And he says, it is I. By Omer, right? And so he says, serve me and let me eat from the game, my son, in order that I may give you this incredibly special, wonderful, once-in-a-lifetime blessing. And he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Vayomer Elav Yitzchak, and Yitzchak said to him, Avi, he said to his father, no wait, Vayomer Elav, and he said to him, Yitzchak is talking, come close, right, and kiss me, my son. And he, at verse 27, right, he approached and he kissed him, and he smelled and he smelled the aroma of his clothing and he blessed him and he said the smell of my son is like the smell of the field right that God has blessed and then he gives him this blessing of, uh, so it is a very old uh, text, this blessing text that we have here at the end about him being master over his uh, brothers. Blanche? I heard an interpretation from a rabbi that 
gave the opinion that women, because they had no power and were not recognized at all, would contemplate this kind of action to have a way to control their children's future. Forget contemplating. <laughs> they do it constantly in our texts, yes? So Blanche is bringing up the fact what is marriage? It is certainly not what we understand in the nuclear family. That is not what marriage has ever been, ever in human society. This idea that it is a romantic connection between partners, that is, first of all, crazy. That's crazy. Marriage has always been a business transaction between two families. It is an alliance created between two clans, between two groups. That is how marriage has always been understood until our crazy idea of romantic love, which we know doesn't work very well. 52% of marriages end in divorce, right? As opposed to arranged marriages, which tend to last a lifetime. So perhaps he makes a decision and then has a little schnapps and is like, this is what it is and this is going to help take the edge off. Like, I just, I can't quite care so much because I can't figure this out. Obviously, obviously there are two interpretations. Obviously. Either he knows something's up and blesses Yaakov anyway, or he is deceived. Those are the two possibilities. There, there's only two. Linda, um, do not tell me you're coming up with a third. No, no. I, okay, I good. I just want to kind of piggyback on what Blanche said about, um, I feel like this story is about um, the mom and the second-born child who are both not powerful people, right? Right. Um, who, who manage to get what they want anyway. And so even though it's kind of like they're the... Uh, disempowered, marginalized people. And to me, that's kind of a Jewish story about you don't have to follow rules all the time if they're not really good rules. And this is the only way that they can get what... Why is it fair that the firstborn gets the blessing and all the inheritance? You know, so... I just feel like it's about that. It's about the mom and the secondborn child being recognized. So... Clearly, there is a challenge to the understood rights of primogenitor. Obviously, these stories come to undermine the system of primogenitor again and again and again. The youngest son inherits again and again and again. When you say primogenitor, it's not just the firstborn. It can't just be like, who in society somehow changed everything? Like, it's... So that is how we use these texts, right? Is to say, what are they coming to talk about other than inheritance? Who else is the weak one, the overlooked one, the disempowered one who ultimately is going to prevail? How big is Israel compared to Egypt? How big is Israel compared to Mesopotamia? All right, that has always been the case. Israel has always been this big. Squashed between the empire here and the empire here. Always. And it was always overrun. Who's the small, weak, overlooked, uh, what word am I looking for? Dismissed one. Who ultimately is the one who inherits the covenantal relationship. It is Israel. Yes, Richard. Um, at the beginning, you said we were starting where we were starting because you didn't want to start. <laughs> exactly. I have such high hopes every time. Um, but in terms of, you know, like what was Rivka's motivation and things like that, by starting where we started, 
you know, we don't get a little bit more of the backstory as to where Lyft is coming from. Right. So a chapter and a half back into 25, where where she's still pregnant with the two children. Um, you know, the children pressed against each other inside her. She thought, if this is so, why do I exist? So she went to inquire about Adonai. Adonai said to her, Two peoples are in your belly, two nations shall branch off from each other as they emerge from your womb. One people shall prevail over the other, the elder shall serve. So Rivka clearly believes she's doing what Adonai wants, 100%. No one doubts Rivka. No one doubts that Rivka's doing what she absolutely feels is the right thing to do. So is Yitzchak. We're at an impasse. Rabbi, am I to read this that this is sort of predating Jewish morality that isn't until later in the, in the world? I think how we understand morality has to be contextualized. So what do, what do we... What do we understand as the guiding moral principles? You have to look to the to the society one lives in. But there is no standard here other than do what is expedient to get what you want. Unless what you want is to fulfill the will of God. How is that not moral? This is everything that's deceitful going on. She gets an oracle that says the younger will serve the older. Her husband is messing it up. God wants your younger son, I mean, to rule over the older son. And your husband is messing it up. What do you do? She doesn't go to her husband and say, I have a problem, husband. Because she clearly sees that he prefers Esav and is going to bless Esav. You know, I remember sitting through a discussion by two lawyers uh, defending Cain and Abel. And that, but why did you defend Cain? Because there was no law against murder at this time. Right, he doesn't know. Yeah, is that what we're going at here? Well, it isn't till late because you can see Volkswagen. You know, you can see that Yaakov is the patron saint, or Isaac is the patron saint of Volkswagen. Yaakov. I mean, this is okay. So, I, I guess, I guess, what I'm asking you to do for just a second is enter this world and go to a willing suspension of disbelief. Suspend your moral code. Well, fine. I know, I know. So, it's and I'm curious about it. Right. Is there no moral code as we now know a moral code? For them, this might be the moral thing to do, is what I'm suggesting. We, we have So we have to ask before right. Sinai, exactly before right. Torah, before any of that, the way they understand acting is in line with the will of Yudhe Vavhe. It is up to them to discern what that is. Rivka goes to an oracle and gets the will of God communicated to her. She believes God wants the younger twin to rule over the elder. That is her moral code. So taking that, do we then understand that the moral code is what an individual believes God wants of them? Yes. In the code of Genesis, yes. And after, and after, I have to always decide in every instance, what is the moral thing to do? What does God require of me? You and I might come to very different answers post Sinai. But what you're raising here is a very interesting question of the role of organized religion because that's what transmits values. Other than that, it's Amy's code. Correct. So this was a theocracy. Adonai telling me how to behave so, until some event that says, no, there's a bigger issue here than what you So, but, but David, in some ways we're still in this. I can argue for abortion. You can argue against it based on the same constitution. What's the moral? What is the moral imperative of the Constitution vis-a-vis terminating a fetus? We cannot—not you, but pick somebody else. We can't agree. So we can say we have a shared moral code, but it's interpreted always by how I understand the moral situation. So let's just acknowledge that. That's how it always is. That's how it always was. That's how there's a Talmud. That's how there's rabbinic arguments through the generation. That's how there's constitutional law books that are, right? 
this big. Rabbi, the difference is, is that we would both agree that there is a morality, thou shalt not kill. You would look at that and say it doesn't quite apply in this circumstance. I might look and say it does, and we disagree. That doesn't exist here. Correct. There is no Cor- Correct, until Sinai. Right. Okay. okay. Clearly, this... This story is the history of the, if you want, evolution right. of human society, society, and it starts with a Garden of Eden with yeah. one rule that right. they break, and right. it keeps on developing. But what I don't, what I don't want us to forget is that it's written post Sinai. It's written by a people who already has a moral code. This is not history. This did not happen. This did not happen. This is not history. This is stories written by a people who share a moral code writing about the times before that. Before there was a moral code. Correct. That, it's their writing. It's their, projecting. Yes. They're projecting yeah. backwards. <laughs> Correct. 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 So it's not like, oh, there wasn't one, and so that's why these stories are like that, because they didn't know that. It's written by people who very well understand the Constitution. They're retrojecting because before there was a constitution, this is how it looked. This is how people behaved, and this is how they made decisions. Okay, I want to go to the ideas of Rabbi uh, of Dr. Aviva Zorenberg, um, and I'm going to give you, unfortunately, I copied from the second book, Peter Pitzel's book, I copied the wrong pages. Um, one page is right, one page is wrong. Um, Peter Pitzel is a bibliodrama teacher. And he uses these texts as a way into people's own inner experience of them by having them act them out. So he would say, to your question, Rivka, how can you then face your husband tomorrow morning in bed? How are you going to bring him the New York Times? Pass them back to please. Um, how are you going to face your husband with coffee and the newspaper tomorrow morning after having done this to him? And then Rivka has to answer, right? In bibliodrama, Rivka has to actually answer that question. And so you enter the character and you enter deeply into the drama of the text. So Peter Pitzula has studied these texts from that perspective and talks about the twins. I wish Diane were here. She'd love that. Um, that they're both, they're both always here, Right? The, the good son, the bad son, the wild son, the tame son, the son that likes to go out and be in the field, and the son that likes to sit at home and read. They're, they're both here. The seen one, the unseen one, the loved one, the unloved one. They're, they're both here all the time, and they both live within us, and they're both screaming for a blessing. They're both screaming to be acknowledged, to be affirmed, uh, and Peter Pitzilla writes beautifully about that. So the page that's correct is your second page of his. So, so where it says the myth of... Oh, no, I did do it right. They're just backwards. So see where it says the myth of the wrestler? That's the, to the left of that, over here is the end of the Peter Pitzilla text. So if you go to the page before it... What does it say at the very top of the page? It's like this. The one with the poem at the bottom. Okay. Right. Yeah? Yes. Okay. That's Peter Pitzeleff speaking from a place of bibliodrama, right, about this. Um, so go drop down to where it says this scene between father and son. Mm-hmm. This scene between father and son is a mock initiation. Jacob is still green, the great father, as mystery has not brushed him with his power. Jacob's imagination has not yet been fired by vision or dream or encounter. His real potency still sleeps, and his powers have been put to the ends not of conception, but of deception. Jacob is spiritually unfathered. Why is he unfathered? And as the great father... Why is he unfathered? Because Isaac favors Esau. Because Isaac favors Esau. So he's not had fathering from his father and has not yet been brushed by the wings of the father, capital F. Right? He must do as his fathers before him have done. He must leave his native land and his father's house and wander. He must become a stranger. 
God will meet him where? Where does God meet everybody? In the wilderness, of course. The wilderness is his place of vision and adoption. A very, I just got chill, a very intense reframing, right? That Jacob has to leave home to be adopted by a father. Who's God? Who's God? Because he can't get it at home. In setting out for strange lands, he leaves Asaph behind. In his long exile, Jacob will sojourn in Haran. Many events will befall him, but always the memory of his treachery will remain. The shame and the fear of it will haunt him, and when the time comes for him to return to the promised land, he will meet his dreaded brother at the border, because we always do, don't we? Peter Pizzola is suggesting we leave Asaph behind, we go out to seek our adoption, our confrontation with our destiny, our ultimate aim, our ultimate purpose, but we're going to have to at some point become that, turn around, and go back and meet Asaph at the border if we're going to live a life that's whole if we're going to reconcile our past. And remember at the end of the story, the brothers, the brothers reconcile and they bury their father together. So for Peter Pizzola, this is a story going to that meta level. What is the message? The message is, yes, the younger will overturn. The old, we're going to flip the order. He's got to leave. He's got to become who he's going to become. And then he's got to go back and deal with the past and deal with what he's done, and confront the Esav. We must confront our Esav and find a way to embrace. And Esav has to find a way to embrace Yaakov. They have to embrace, and then they can bury the past together, respectfully. Meaning, the past has to, Isaac has to die, and he has to get buried. It's not like they're shoving it away, right? It's that they're doing what's appropriate. That era's gone. We need to leave it where it belongs, respectfully, and then move on into our futures. So I just want to close with the, this, the words of uh, this James Stevens poem called The Twins, which he brings here. Good and bad are in my heart, but I cannot tell you, for they never are apart. Which is better of the two? I am this, I am the other, and the devil is my brother. But my father, he is God. And my mother is the sod. I am safe enough, you see, owning to my pedigree. So I shelter love and hate like twin brothers in a nest, lest I find when it's too late that the other was the best. Um, I'll let you read on your own the Aviva Zornberg piece. What I want to lift up for you about this piece that I found really, really compelling this year, (laughs) right, every year, It's some other aspect of the story. The meta level of this one that I really appreciated about uh, Zorenberg's analysis is that she suggests it's only by disguising himself as a Sav that Yaakov is able to become the patriarch. We... we, Fake it before you make, fake it until you make it is what she's saying. That is what always has to happen. We, we have to put on Asad's clothes and just kind of stride around pretending before we are able to then own the role of Asav and become what Yaakov isn't yet, strong you know, of limbs, strong of body, strong in power, strong in his father's household, right? That, you know, having that, in order for him to become that, he must first put it on and kind of, right, walk around like a fake Asav. He, and he has to move in that role with some faith that this is truly what's supposed to happen. He's supposed to take Asav's place. I don't know how to, it, she, she's very compelling. I want you to just try to get through some of it yourselves. It, it is really compelling to me that she says it's the only way to work with reality and changing reality, right? That we have to, we have to distance ourselves from who we are right now in order to become, right? As long as we're still attached to this identity, 
We can't do what it's going to take to become something else. We have to put on the suit and pretend to be senior rabbi. (laughs) And we just walk around pretending because we believe ultimately it's what we are supposed to do and it's what we want to become, but we know it's not us yet. It's a costume, right? It's Steven's suit. And we have to, notice I don't wear suits so much anymore. Just saying. Um, Does this crossing the threshold? uh, It is sincerity and authenticity. And what she says is in this chapter, we have to move from sincerity, being sincere about who we are, to being authentic. And being authentic, moving into authenticity is going to require us to put on a costume. Like if you want to pretend you're a novelist. Let's say. Let's say you want to pretend you're a novelist. Because that's really what you want to be. Right? You know you're supposed to. And you know you're supposed to. And you know what you're calling. But you know you can't do it yet because you're afraid. But if in front of a bunch of witnesses in a sacred space, like, I don't know, at a Torah study, for instance, if you were to say for the first time out loud, because I'm a novelist, <gasps> a possibility, even though I feel like an imposter, even though it doesn't feel true yet, I am a novelist, suddenly, by putting on that costume, by putting on that identity, saying it out loud, it opens the possibility to truly become a fabulous Fabulous novelist. Do you think she really means that you have to pretend, <laughs> or is she also saying, get ready to cross the bridge? Those that will succeed will fall. She's saying, I think she's saying you can't rely on your own sense of trusting this is me. You have to take a risk. You have to jump out ahead. And you have to not be comfortable in it. Right. It's not you yet, right. but you do it anyway. But not being imposter. I, I want you to read it and tell me what you think. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.